0: Welcome to the Social Review podcast. It's a very special episode. We're fr- uh, coming from St Martin's Coffee Shop in Leicester, and I am joined by uh, the
1: MP for Leicester South and Shadow Secretary of State for Health, Jonathan Ashworth. Hello. Actually, and we're actually in my fabulous Leicester South constituency, and on a podcast. So this is very exciting. We're in a we're in a coffee shop. Uh, and- so it's very, very much a podcast vibe here. Actually, I think very social review this is. I think, and, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be here to, to talk about the world, the state of the labour party,
0: and the future of socialism. Fantastic, thank you. Um, so we've just obviously had a catastrophic election defeat, um, fourth in a row. Uh, what are your sort of feelings on the campaign? What sort of went wrong? And how did the campaign feel to for you?
1: Well, it's a devastating defeat, uh, and. It's becoming almost a cliche to say it's a devastating defeat, but it was absolutely shattering, wasn't it? And for us to lose constituencies like North West Durham, like Bolsover, like the seats we lost in Stoke, these are seats which have been Labour through and through. I mean, in many ways, they were the heart and soul of the Labour Party and the Labour movement. And I think if you'd said to my... Uh, Dad, who was a trade unionist, that we would lose seats like that. He, you know, he's not alive anymore. But I think if, if I said that to him twenty years ago, would, he would he, he would have laughed at me. So, but not only did we lose seats in our Heartland or the the Red Wall, as they've become known, that's we went backwards in seats that we should have been taking off the Tories. We went backwards in Mansfield. I mean, Mansfield is up the road from here in Leicester. Uh, Hasn't always been an easy seat for Labour, but it's been a Labour seat. Um, The Tories have got a majority of about fourteen thousand now. I mean, it's just and then places like Hastings, where people thought we were going to win, we've gone backwards. All you know, and all the classic swing seats that decide general elections, like Bolton West, um, uh, the Swindons, the Stevenages of the world. We've gone, we've gone backwards. I think. The landscape facing, or the electoral landscape facing a, a new leader in the Labour Party going forward, is perhaps the most challenging landscape we have ever faced, in, in the, certainly in the last 50 years. That's not to say we can't win the next general election. I fundamentally think we can. And, you know, um, Harold Wilson took, in 19, uh, 1964 and 66, he took, um, you know, I can't, I can't remember the figures, somebody will correct me, but it was 80, 90 seats. Cameron took about seventy, eighty seats. I think maybe even more than that in 20, 2010. So it is, it is doable, but it, but it is, uh, it is challenging. But I think fundamentally, the reason I'm optimistic is we are, we are. When you look at the big challenges facing us, I mean, as a society, uh, not as a Labour Party, but as a society, I fundamentally believe that the only answers to those big challenges are socialist answers or social democratic answers, depending on which label you prefer to use. So the big challenges we face, I think there are three. Climate change is the most pressing and most obvious. How do we decarbonise our economy? Well, you can only deal with the challenge of climate change through intervention, through, you know, through, through uh, activist government, through socialist government. The second big challenge, I would say, is the way in which the world of work is changing automation, AI, technology, is clearly changing the nature of the workplace. Again, only an interventionist socialist government can answer those the challenges of that and what that means for work-life balance, what that means for uh, 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 the distribution of wages in the economy. And the third big challenge, which is what I'm obviously very interested in as the Shadow Health Secretary, is that we have this paradox that people are beginning to live longer, yet we've also got life expectancy going backwards for the very poorest in society. So this we have, if you like, widening health inequalities or health poverty, as I like to call it, uh, which means, for example, that children born in the poorest bits of this city will live on average around nine or ten years less than children born in the richest bits of this county. Again, the only way to deal with that challenge is through a socialist activist set of policies and government. So I actually think the big policy questions that face us, the Labour Party is the only party that will have any answers. So so I'm optimistic about the future, but I cannot hide my absolute devastation at the result of that general election. Um,
0: So since the election, a lot has been made of sort of Labour's inability to connect our policies to voters. So um, what was the policy... Or argument in your brief that you feel sort of had the most cut through? Um, and why do you think that was and how do you think we can replicate that across
1: the board? Well, obviously, as, as the Shadow Health Secretary, I was campaigning on the NHS day in, day out. And people do care about the NHS. But what was particularly devastating about this general election is that even though the NHS in health is identified as the second most important issue generally in opinion polls, the third these days, by the way, interestingly, is climate change and the environment, uh, which, should, which should be... Uh, fill us with optimism on the left. Even though that was the, the NHS and health was considered to be the second most important issue, somehow we were not connecting with the British people, they did not believe us. And I think one of the problems with the manifesto, even though there were lots of very good individual items in the manifesto, it's somehow, uh, the scale of the, the number of items in there, uh, I, I, don't think it, I don't think people quite believed we were going to deliver everything. It's like someone said to me. It was a bit like the Generation Game, you know, at the end of the Generation. Maybe you're too young to watch. The, you're too young for the Generation Game, but for the for the younger listeners of Social Review, there was a famous uh, bit at the end of the Generation Game where lots of prizes would roll past on their conveyor belt, including a t- cuddly toy. And it was a bit like that. It was a bit like the conveyor belt of prizes. You know, we've got the health. We've got we've got more money for the NHS. That's good. We've got free Wi-Fi. Um, There's a cuddly toy. I think there was free Wi-Fi as well. And there was. It was a bit like that. And I think it just became it became sort of overwhelming and people didn't think it was credible even though and this is the this is the frustration for many of us who were involved in putting together that manifesto all the individual items were painstaking work went into them they added up we worked out how we were going to fund them where the, what the tax changes that had to be made in order to fund them tremendous amounts of detail went into them but somehow putting it all together in one big collection kind of undermined its central message Yeah, definitely. So um, why do you think sort of Labour's messaging around sort of
0: Boris Johnson selling the NHS off to Donald Trump didn't seem to maybe work in the same way as sort of that conservative messaging? What do you think went wrong?
1: Because although it's a legitimate complaint, and it is a worry, and we're going to use, we're going to actually try and bring amendments to the trade bill in Parliament to protect the NHS from a US sell-off, I don't think people believed it. And the reality is... What do people care about in the NHS? They care about the growing waiting list. They care about the fact that their their child is waiting longer. Say if they've got a mental health problem, that they're waiting longer and longer to see a specialist. Indeed, 130,000 children and young people get turned away from specialist mental health services because the, the service is so overwhelmed and underfunded. They worry about their grandma or auntie or uncle languishing for hours upon hours on a trolley in a hospital corridor. They worry that when they're given a cancer diagnosis they're not getting treatment quickly because the cancer waiting lists are growing and growing and growing. These are the issues that people genuinely really, and really, really care about. And we did focus on those issues, but I think, I think when we tried to warn people, and there were legitimate warnings about the future of the NHS and what that means in the Trump trade deal, people didn't quite believe it because nobody believes that Donald Trump is going to somehow come to Leicester and take over Leicester Royal Infirmary because that's not actually what a trade deal is all about anyway. Trade deal is about your ability to when commissioning services whether you have to give those services out to the to US US uh, health firms or keep them in house. It's a problem for it's a frustration for those, those of us who are socialists who want services to be ran in house. But if we're honest there's a lot of people out there whose view is well as long as it's free I'm not, I don't care whether it's run by the NHS or Virgin Care. I care. I desperately care. And I don't want services to be run by Virgin Care or a US health firm. But in reality, there's a lot of people who are less exercised by that than we are. So I think that was the difficulty. Uh, people didn't quite understand it or think it was real. And, and, and some people just think, as so long as the health service is free... The less worried about who provides that service. I mean, I disagree with that, but people do have that viewpoint, I'm afraid. So, I think we've touched on this a bit, but in the election, we,
0: uh, we spoke about saving the NHS from Johnson and Trump, but now we've lost, what are your biggest fears for what's going to happen with it going forward?
1: Well, the NHS is simply not getting the funding it needs, and that is a... That is a I mean, that was an argument we made in, 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 the, uh, in the election campaign, but... We were also trying to highlight the fact that it's not just NHS. You've got to think about the other services that used to be considered NHS, but since the Tory-Lansley Act are no longer. Public health services, their smoking cessation services, alcohol and, and drug services, uh, obesity services, they've all been devastating, devastatingly cut back under the Tories. What that means now, for example, is that you, have exact, you, you see that um, uh, se- uh, se- sexually transmitted infections are on the increase. You've actually got uh, pregnant women presenting at A&E with neonatal syphilis for the first time in over 100 years. You've got more people dying uh, from drug overdose and down the roads in this country. You've got increasing numbers of people admitted to hospital because of alcohol-related problems. Uh, We know we've got a child obesity crisis uh, as well. So all these services that keep people well and prevent ill health have been cut back hugely under the Tories, and they just don't seem to get it. And this is why, this is why not only are you're seeing greater pressures on the on A&E itself, greater pressures on GP surgeries, but actually you're seeing widening health inequalities in society. Now, you're seeing life expectancy stalling. I mean, life expectancy has generally improved every year, uh, certainly improved since since the war. It's now beginning to stall, even going backwards for the very poorest. You're seeing health inequalities widening. You're seeing child mortality rates. That is, that is essentially that's poorly babies not surviving until their first birthday. Uh, those rates have worsened four years in a row. last time that happened was the Second World War. And this is what happens when you have austerity and you have cutbacks to public health services, but you also cut back early intervention services. And you can see the correlations between poverty, deprivation and ill health. That's what really motivates me. And I suppose my biggest single criticism of that Labour manifesto, and it's, and it's ironic this, given the way in which the leadership debate appears to unfold on social media, my biggest single criticism of that Labour manifesto is that child poverty would not have reduced under, those Labor, under that manifesto. Child poverty is roughly around thirty percent One in three children growing up in poverty. It's going, to, it's going to go through the roof under the Tories. We're probably going to have the highest child poverty rates since records began in 1961. Child poverty rates far higher than Thatcher, or major. We would have stopped the increase in child poverty, but child poverty would not, have re- would not have been reduced under the Labour Manifesto. Now, I do think that's ironic, given the way in which some people on social media are trying to characterise the current leadership contest around what people did on a particular welfare bill or didn't do on a welfare bill, when we just fought a general election on a manifesto that didn't reduce child poverty and when we know there is such a correlation between child poverty and child ill health and then in turn wider health inequalities I think we have to do something in the future to put reducing child poverty front and centre of our campaigning and our policy development over the next few years So we're facing probably four or five years now
0: potentially more of opposition How does um,
1: uh,
0: the Shadow Health Secretary face that? How do we face
1: that going forward? Well, I don't know. I be the should of <laughs> "I mean, <laughs> you or otherwise." <laughs> I, mean, uh, uh, I think we have to campaign on the issues uh, that we're talk- we have to uh, that I've been talking about, and I, as I say, I'm optimistic because I do believe that on all the big challenges that we face, only a Labour Party with, so- with a socialist response can can meet those challenges. But it's going to be difficult. We've got to be. We've got to rebuild trust with people. We've got to rebuild trust with people who uh, deserted us because of because they perceived that we failed to deal with anti-Semitism in the party, and we cannot allow anti-Semitism to leave an indelible stain on the soul of this party, so a new leader has to move quickly to stamp out all forms of anti-Semitism. And I think, actually, all three of the potential leadership candidates have made clear that they want to deal deal with that, Uh, and I think all three of them spoke out extremely strongly. In terms that have garnered some criticism from certain quarters, um, but they did speak out strongly, for example, at the Jewish Labour movement hustings last week and elsewhere. So we have to deal with that, but uh, we've uh, but we but we have, we have we've got to rebuild in the current elections. I mean, one of the, my frustrations about this leadership contest, which seems to be going on forever, doesn't it? I mean, I, I mean I'm going to have a grey beard down to my knees by the time this leadership contest ends. Uh, Are we halfway through yet? Yeah, uh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it seems to be going on forever, but... You know, we're going to have a new leader, but then we're straight into a really important set of elections. Sadiq Khan in London, we've got to win the mayoral election in Birmingham. If we win that, that is a big, big boost for us. But we've got election, you know, local government elections. But here in Leicester, we've got to hold on to a police commissioner election. I mean, that new leader has got a challenge straight away. So I do think it's a bit frustrating that they've been, that they're expected to put in place a a a local election campaign having just been elected leader at the beginning of April. uh, so that that's important, but we've got we've got to be talking to people about the issues that they affects them, and a the way in which they understand, and a way in which and a, and a way in which a way in which which connects. And I don't, I'm not, well, manifestly, we fail to do that in the general election campaign. So, as um, shadow
0: health secretary, you talked about a health in all policies approach to policy making. Can you explain what you meant by this and how that
1: would work in practice? I mean, absolutely, because the you know you, the Tory government now are talking about levelling up. And this is their buzz phrase at the moment. But leveling up for the Tory government appears to be just funding infrastructure projects. If you want to genuinely level up across the country, you have to invest in this country's greatest asset, which is its people. But at the moment though, you've got these widening health inequalities where basically you know, people in poorer areas are twice as likely to die from lung disease, cancer, heart disease. In poorer areas, you're more likely to develop mental health problems. We're actually seeing now suicide rates increasing Deaths from drug overdose increasing, Direct deaths from alcohol abuse increasing. We've got something called uh, um, deaths of despair emerging in the United Kingdom. This is a phenomenon that's been well known in the US for years. This is essentially people, uh, this is mortality rates of people dying um, between their sort of teenage years and their late 40s, early 50s. Increasing numbers are dying from suicide, drugs, and alcohol. And it is more, and, it, and, it, and it, you see a greater uh, prevalence of this uh, phenomenon. In poorer, more deprived areas. As I said, you've seen life expectancy going backwards and you and health, healthy healthy living years in poorer areas now is basically your late forties for a man or a woman. What that means is if you're in a poorer area, by the time you hit your late forties, you probably have to leave the labour market because you're not well enough to work. Right? Why that is an issue is that obviously that means that that um that's people who presumably will want to uh, will not have built up a full pension will probably need to rely on some sort some form of social security so you cannot create a more equal society while people are being forced out of the labour market because of because of uh, an illness a debilitating illness by their late 40s simply because of the circumstances in which they were born into or are growing uh, uh, or have grown up in or, 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 or living I mean that should offend us as socialists. so when I say we need a health in all policies approach, you know, improving the health and well-being of the nation isn't just the responsibility of the, of the Secretary of State for Health. It's the responsibility of everybody in government. Not only because I believe, if you, if you fundamentally believe in a more equal society, that is the correct thing to do, but it's also in the interest of economic growth as well. It's in the interests of the future of the economy and our future prosperity as well. So it's about investing in early years. It's about bringing back short start centres. It's about dealing with the gig economy and the way in which the world of work is driving so many mental health problems these days. Increasing numbers of people, uh, you know, uh, leaving, uh, t- taking time off work through sickness related to depression and anxiety because of the way the gig economy works. It means it means using the your local government uh, base to fund projects which uh, uh, strengthen social capital in communities. It's a, it's, about, it's about judging every single policy decision that a government takes on how it will improve health and well-being, because if you're improving health and well-being, you're creating a more equal society. And that, for me, is what it should all be about, because that's why I'm a socialist. I want to see a more equal society. Fantastic. And I think you've touched on a lot of this already, but before the election,
0: Labour announced plans for a Future Generations Act for England following... Um, similar legislation implemented by the Welsh Labour government and similar initiatives in New Zealand. Can you talk a bit about what this policy would mean if it were to be implemented by a future Labour government and how would it shift policy
1: making? So This was about <coughs> introducing a, a legislative framework to enshrine in law a health and all policies approach and to, and to make the, the guiding principle of government to pr- improve health and well-being. Now, some, some listeners might think, well, isn't that what our Labour governments are all about? And there's some truth in that, because the Labour Party, we used to talk about the social wage. We don't, it's sort of fallen out of uh, fashionable use, but that used to be what our priority was. It's not just the individual wages and terms and conditions of the workers, but in, to improve the social wa- wage of everyone. That's why we invested in the NHS, that's why we invested in schools, that's why we built a welfare state. Um, and what I wanted to do, Bart, through introducing a Future Generations Wellbeing Act, would be to enshrine in law and in understanding that every government decision would be aimed at reducing health inequalities and improving the well-being of society as a whole. Uh, and and I do think this is a, a set of thinking which is well within our traditions, uh, because improving people's well-being is what the Labour Party should be all about. I mean, Marx used to talk about creating a society where you could, uh, I think, Hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, and uh, uh, be a critic after dinner. And of course, of course, Tony Crossland used to talk about um, you know the sort of aesthetic life of open air cafes. And I'm sure Tony Crossland would be very approving of where we are, of where we're sat right now. And um, and although uh, you know, and although not a socialist, Bobby Kennedy, you know, the great the liberal Demo- Democrat in the uh, in the states. He I mean, was obviously not a socialist, but he used to sort of complain that GDP, you know measures you know, the manufacturing the manufacture of missiles and guns but doesn't measure the quality of education or the beauty of poetry or the joy of children's play. It measures everything other than what makes us uh, makes us happy and I think the point is you're trying to shift the focus of government away from the pounds and pence of every decision but shift the focus of government to improving overall well-being of the population and that's what they've done in Wales that's what they've done in New Zealand and in fact in Wales they introduced this legislation and as a result of it a planned expansion of a motorway w- was shelved as a result because people looked at it and thought well that's this, this motorway expansion is going to, inc- it's going to increase pollution that's not going to help us meet our climate change obligations we don't believe that expanding this motorway is going to improve well-being and they actually abandoned the plan so I think if you had this framework in place it could, it could end up being leading to, to some quite radical policy outcomes. So this was a position that, a policy I developed, the Shadow Cabinet signed up to it, uh, and, we, and I was very pleased that I got this in the manifesto, and it's a shame that I've not had the chance to implement it. The
0: writer Mark Fisher wrote that he viewed his own depression as being linked to social class and wider societal trends, and would sort of... Touched on that kind of thing already, but right now doctors are having to prescribe things like decent food or a walk, and we know about lifestyle-driven illness. But how can labour combat the mental distress caused not just by austerity, but also by uh, precar- precariousness, poor housing, and the pace of modern life? Do you think a public health approach would be helpful?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a this is one of the big issues which is driving. Uh, some of the stalling in life expectancy, because because not only are we seeing increasing rates of suicide amongst people in um, poorer areas, more drug abuse and alcohol uh, uh, abuse. We're seeing that uh, depression and anxiety is the biggest reason why people uh, uh, leave the labour market and t- uh, take take time off time off sick. And you know, uh, 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 as Mark Fisher, was a, who was an excellent writer on these matters, indicates. It's not just, you you have to really understand the social, and I would argue the commercial determinants of ill health. It's about the quality of the housing that we live, but it's also about the experiences we're exposed to as children. So what I mean by that is I'm a great believer in, or a a great advocate of of ensuring that our public services are trauma-informed. I'm a great believer that adverse childhood experiences where a child is exposed to violence in the home, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, uh, physical assault, sexual abuse, obviously impacts on that child and impacts on their future health, physical health and mental health in the future. Uh, And I wanted to ensure that our public services understood this theory of... um, of, uh, of adverse childhood experiences, and built it into their thinking. And this is something I've always been very passionate about because I, I've, I've as al- many people know, was ex- was exposed to my own own adverse childhood experience. Growing up with a father who had a very 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 serious um, uh, drink problem. Um, I mean, I ended up as a politician, so I'll leave your listeners to just decide whether it damaged me or not. Um, um, but you cannot, you know, delivering healthcare cannot simply be about you know, you know, fully, you know, properly investing in a decent hospital or a decent GP surgery, as important as that is, because that is just about... You know, you know, we need to move to a model where we're preventing ill health. But that means taking radical action. So I, for example, would be much more radical on alcohol labelling and alcohol pricing. I think it's time for a braver discussion about the future of drugs in this country. I think Portugal Portugal have done some really interesting things around drugs, and we should be brave enough to have that debate in the Labour Party. I was, I was a bit perhaps unsurprised that the free leadership contenders kind of ran away yeah. from that question, <laughs> uh, but, I'm, but I kind of don't blame them because politicians are nervous about this. But I think it's time for the brave, the brave debate. I may well have answered that question in a different in a different way uh, um, uh, um, had I been asked. Um, I think we need to be more radical at dealing with um, the way in which big food manufacturers you know, uh, advertise their junk food to us. Um, the government say they're going to move on to some of these issues, but I believe it when I see it. So whether it's on mental health or physical health, we have to be more radical at intervening to deal with these commercial and social determinants of ill health. And again, I come back to my original point, only a socialist or social democratic, left or centre government, I mean these labels mean different things to different people, I know, but but, but basically only a Labour party or a Labour government can, would be brave enough to make to date some of these decisions, I believe.
0: At the start you talked about how climate change from the three big problems yeah. facing uh, the world right now. Uh, following the extreme heatwave last summer and flooding this week, um, how can the NHS prepare to meet the challenges of the climate emergency?
1: Well Well, one of the things that I was, I was also really proud of was a piece of work I did when I when sort a Minnesota health secretary. I was making the argument that we sh- that we should have a green new deal for the NHS. Uh, and we developed plans on this because the, the NHS emits I think six percent of carbon emissions have come from the NHS. And if you think about it, that makes sense because we have lots of these big old buildings everywhere, who with lots of ambulances who drive for the drive to them, etc. And people drive there in their cars. Um, and um, we have, you know, obviously have lots of medical waste that we have to get rid of, and we import lots of pharmaceuticals. So it would make sense that the NHS would be one of the worst offenders on um, when it comes to emissions, and and and, in our, and certain inha- and certain medicines are particularly bad, inhalers. They're important if you've got asthma, but they are very—they're not great for the climate. <laughs> so I want. So I said we should have the—we should have a green new deal for the NHS. We should move to, and our NHS should be the greenest in the world. Uh, uh, and um, uh, and that meant that moving, transforming our fleets of vehicles away from dirty, polluting vehicles to more, um, you know, the the uh, uh, the, the energy efficient uh, 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 ambulances and so on. Being clever about the way in which we build our hospitals, as well, make you know, uh, making them energy efficient. I also said we should have an NHS forest. We, I wanted us to plant a million trees across the NHS, not only because of the obvious um, impact that more uh, more trees has on climate, but also more green space has a really really important therapeutic value for particularly on the mental health field, but more generally as well. So I was very proud that we were developing plans to have a green new deal for the NHS and that's something I'm going to continue to advocate as well. Um, uh, and actually a lot of my um, a, a lot of, a lot of my sort of friends were a bit sort of they they teased me when I announced I was going to have an NHS forest of a million trees. But actually there was some po- there was some polling done on it and it came out <laughs> it actually came out as one of our more popular uh, NHS announcements. So um, I'm going to stick to the NHS <laughs> forest of a million trees across the NHS estate. Um, so going back to the
0: never-ending uh, leadership contest, yeah. um, I think you've said you're back in now. Yeah. correct?
1: Yeah. Uh, could you explain a little bit why? How do you know- well, the most honest answer is because I've been friends with her for so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to be honest. Um, yeah. No, we've been good friends back since we both got elected, you know, 2010. I came in in 2011, but basically we've been friends since. I think. I think. Yeah. I think. I think she's. I. I I think she has brought something to this leadership campaign, uh, which wouldn't have been there had she not been nominated and got on the ballot paper. Which is, uh, you know, the the, the fact that she has been warning about what has been going on in some of our traditional seats for some time, Uh, uh, and I think she's a superb performer on the TV and I think the way in which she handled Andrew Neil and Piers Morgan and some of these others very um you know provocative belligerent interviewers has been uh, has been quite was really quite marvelous um and I think she has got I mean who knows we all know who the favorites probably are but you know I think she brings something distinctive distinctive to the debate and we did a lot of work uh, together on the Question of Palestine. When I was a backbencher, I used to speak out a bit on Palestine, as she did. So that was also why I wanted to, to support her. But um, and I think she's got. I think she brings something to the, the debate which which was missing um, as well. So um, I know I know that um, the Open Labour conference. I think uh, yeah, backed her, didn't quite he? heavily, quite yeah, heavily. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Um, sort of more generally, what do you think the sort of fir- first task for whoever wins the contest will be? What's the how does Labour move forward
1: now? I think I that think, I think the, the, the heartening thing about the contest is, you know, ignore the way in which people are trying to polarise this on social media. I think the reality is, all three of those candidates are sticking broadly to the sets of policies that have been developed. I don't think there's any going back to, and these are slightly pejorative terms, but, you know, there's no going back to whatever... You know, the centrism, whatever that means, or the, the Blairite years, and all these labels that get bandied about. All three candidates are sticking broadly in the same space. I say broadly because you don't, we're not going to fight the 2024 general election with the same manifesto, or 2025, with the manifesto that we fought the 2019 general election. That's just common sense. Policies develop. Challenges develop. But everyone, I think, agrees that you need um, interventionist, uh as an in economically interventionist, um, um, uh, anti-austerity, pro-public services, pro-public sector approach these big questions. I mean, some people are trying to say, well, you know, Brexit is what lost us the election. And, you know, obviously Brexit was a big part of that, and they're trying to sort of blame one candidate for that. But on that, I would say, if your analysis is that one candidate forced us onto a Brexit position... You've got, you've got to have an explanation to the 99 constituency Labour Parties in 2018 and the 85 constituency Labour Parties in, in uh, uh, 2019 who put forward motions to the party conference calling for a second referendum and conf- calling for us to adopt a Remain position. Because otherwise, all, that you, all the arguments you make about party democracy are frankly for the birds. People might not have liked the position that we ended up with on Brexit, but that was the position that our party conference wanted us to adopt. And if you're going to blame somebody, you should have been brave enough to stand up at the party conference and ask ask them not to pass those particular resolutions. I've been at party conferences in the past where leaders or, um, um, you know, cabinet people on behalf of leaders have pleaded with the party conference not to vote for a particular motion. Sometimes they've succeeded, sometimes they've failed but we cannot say you know that Brexit position was the fault of uh, one particular person or, or one particular person and their sort of gang in the should of cabinet when we had all these CLPs putting in motions as party democracy I'm um, sorry I've slightly gone off on a tangent there <laughs> uh, um, uh, what was your original question?
0: <laughs> um Morgan, one of our writers, has an um, ongoing campaign to find out who the most punk rock politician is. Well, it's definitely not me. <laughs> what's the most punk rock thing you've ever done?
1: The most punk rock thing <coughs> I've ever done? I don't think I've done anything punk rock. What counts as doing something punk rock? Oh, I don't
0: know, you have to ask.
1: Um... Uh, um, what's the most punk rock thing I've ever, ever done? Um, I've. Um, what
0: sort
1: of music do you listen to? Well, I've got quite an ec- eclectic taste in music, but I, I went to see Morrissey at his last gig at the GMEX when it was called the GMAX, now the Manchester Central Conference Centre. That's not very punk rock, but it feels <laughs> like. It. Uh, um, uh, once stood next to Noel Gallagher at an airport. <laughs> That's good yeah. enough. That'll do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> You, I was so. at, it was at the baggage. It was at the baggage carousel, and and we were waiting ages for the baggage to come through, and uh, and he looked at me and just went, Ugh, isn't this? And he swore, and <laughs> I was so like starstruck. I just went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And another episode of the Social Review Podcast comes to an end. Thank you so much to uh, John Ashworth for coming on and talking to Joe. Uh, It's such an incredible honour to have the Shadow Secretary of State for Health on the podcast. Um, Thank you guys very much for listening. Uh, We've got a couple more very cool, exciting interviews coming out over the next few days. So do keep an eye on your subscription inboxes. And if you aren't subscribed, what the hell are you doing? Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye.